Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Surprise Jab Podcast. I'm your host, Zach Ruger, surprising you with new topics every single week and jabbing you with your daily dose of UFC. And we are coming off a massive weekend for fellow UFC fans as UFC 298 went down Saturday night. It did not disappoint. We went absolutely amazing on the card, 9-2 and two on predictions. One fight was changed after we released our episode, and I did not have time to properly um, remake my pick or announce it, so we just discontinued that fight. Um, predicted all the prelims correctly, besides that one fight that uh, didn't happen, and only got two incorrect picks on the main card. And in the main event, we correctly predicted the winner and the round and the method by which he won. So that was very, very exciting. It was a very good weekend for me. Got to see the girlfriend, got to go up to the University of Minnesota, which was fun. Watch the fights, just had an absolute ball. But we're back to the grind this week. Schoolwork galore. Um, getting back into things, trying to get an internship, trying to stay productive. And on today's episode, we're not, we don't get too much today. Not too much. Going to be actually talking about the NBA All-Star game uh, that went down this past weekend. I didn't even realize that the All-Star game was uh, going on, but nonetheless, it is. Super fun stuff, I guess. But um, yeah, we're also going to be revisiting UFC 100. Um, revisiting UFC 100 and this little thing we're going to do when we look at UFC 100 and UFC 200 before we get to UFC 300 in April. We're also going to be talking about some new UFC news, looking at the 48 Laws of Power, and recapping every single fight that went down at UFC. 298. So strap in everyone because we got a nice little fun one today. A nice little chill episode as I've got stuff to do. But nonetheless, we still have to uh, jab ourselves, surprise ourselves with the podcast. I don't know. Let's get into it. Let's just start off with some new UFC news. And unfortunately, uh, there there's only really one main news to talk about. And that is the UFC 300 main event was just announced and you know I'm not gonna say it was underwhelming because underwhelming just feels I don't really want to say unfair but I mean it certainly certainly doesn't feel like an absolutely star studded uh main event if you will uh, the main event is a light heavyweight championship out between Alex Pereira and Jamal Hill. So, nonetheless, it is a big title fight. Um, Alex Pereira's first title defense since winning the belt in November, and uh, Jamal Hill's first fight since January of 2023 after he won the light heavyweight belt but was forced to vacate it due to an injury. Alex Pereira, we all know about him. Israel Asanya's studded rival actually won the middleweight title in 2022. Unfortunately, he wasn't able to defend it against uh, Adesanya, but since after that Adesanya whole fiasco, went 2-0 at light heavyweight, won the championship. I mean, it just does not get much better than that, let me tell you that. Jamal Hill, his opponent, I mean, Jamal's 12-1, seven wins by knockout, four of those in the first round. He's currently on a four-fight win streak, too, coming off the biggest win of his career over Gloa Teixeira. I mean, it is it is pretty, it's, it's going to be a good fight, and I know people are going to hate, but the card itself, UC 300, is very, very stacked. Um, of course, Dana White did mention there's one more fight he's waiting to announce, so I'm excited to see what that fight could potentially be. I don't exactly know, but um, yeah, well, I'm just I'm just happy that we get to see Jamal Hill and Alex Pereira fight. Uh, Alex Pereira is um nine and two with seven of those wins by knockout and uh, three of those in the first round. He is on a two fight winning streak, 
And um, as for what else could have been the main event of UFC 300, there's actually some other news in regard to UFC 300, is that Dana White says that Leon Edwards was offered three different opponents for UFC 300 and said yes to all of them. Now, I want you guys to understand that Bilal Muhammad was not one of those people. That's right, Bilal Muhammad, 10-fight unbeaten streak. Um, number two, welterweight in the world, was not given it. And I found that very fascinating because that really says a lot about how the UFC feels about Bilal Muhammad. But the three people they chose was your lightweight champion, Islam Makhachev, uh, middleweight, welterweight, undefeated madman, Hamza Chemaev, and the undefeated uh, Kyrgyzstan boy, Shavkat Rachmanov. And Shavkat was injured... All right, so Shavkat was unable to. And Hamza and Islam both had Ramadan. You know, they're devout Muslims. So I don't know what the UFC was thinking, choosing those three as the potential opponents for Elian Edwards. Uh, I don't even know what other fight could be announced. You know, when I look at the rankings, we're running out of people that could potentially fight. And what what other point did I have? I'm actually very confused by Alex Pereira and Jamal Hill booking. Uh, the main reason for that is because UFC 301, the next pay-per-view going down May 4th, is in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. And Alex Pajera is our only Brazil champion that can main event. I mean, no offense, Alexander Pantoa, flyweight champion, but he doesn't really have a set contender. And I don't want to see the winner of Brandon Moreno and Brandon Rival uh, going down this weekend at uh, UFC Mexico City and making a two-month turnaround just to main event a pay-per-view. You know, I don't want to see that. And even if it can be done, because I've seen Volk trying to make a four-month turnaround, we saw how well that turned out for him. So it, it really just comes down to what is the UFC yet planned? And also, UFC 300 main event, definitely this whole card is just taking a bunch of hits with they, they power book 298 and 299. Um, I really think the UFC 299 bookings really hurt them because they made they made it seem like, you know, with how good UFC 299 is, that UFC 300 was going to just have amazing, amazing fights. And while it does, there are some fights on UFC 300 that I think would have done much better if they had been on UFC 300, such as uh, Dustin Poirier, Benoit Saint-Denis such as Piotr Jan, Sonia Dan. I mean, Kevin Holland and Michael Venom Page, that feels like a UFC 300 fight, if you ask me. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens when it comes to the UFC in general. But that's all the new news, really. I mean, the, ma the main news of the weekend was the big pay-per-view. So we'll be probably diving into that a lot more. Um, speaking of something that went down this past weekend, the NBA All-Star Game. That is right, the NBA All-Star Game. I uh, completely didn't even cover this last uh, episode because I completely forgot about it. I completely forgot about it. They had a whole weekend of activities, I think. Gosh, I don't even know who won the three-point contest. Um, or even who won the, I think Mac McClung, notable college, notable high school dunker, who's not, who's in the G League, won the dunk contest. But from what I've heard, this was so underwhelming. This that Adam Silver, the commissioner of the NBA, was just so upset about the lack of uh, of trying in the NBA All Star game, the lack of hype around it. And, you know, the All-Star game, it was kind of a disaster. No defense was played. The final score, 211 for the Eastern Conference, 186 for the West. Set a new All-Star game record for most total combined points, most points put up by a single team with 211. And it was just an offensive scoring mess, and it, it just felt like a scrimmage game with a crowd. And I don't know who in their right mind would pay to, to watch something like this. So that's also another question 
that I beg to differ. Who's paying to go and watch all this nonsense? But um, yeah, just let's um, let's just look at some of the stats because my favorite one when we look at the West is that Carl Anthony Towns dropped fifty freaking points. Absolutely insane. Just I was obviously thrilled when I saw that. That's right. That's my center. That's my Minnesota Timberwolves center. Wolves, best team in the West. Love it. He also had eight boards and three assists. And when I'm looking at all the stats, not a single player had a double-double. Not a single player had a double-double. Just points. Just points galore. I mean, and people were just being left wide open. They were being left to drive to the basket. Just an embarrassment, if you ask me. You know, when I play the game in 2K, I want it to be competitive. I want to think it's realistic. And they need to add stakes. I think adding stakes to the game is what could really improve the NBA All-Star game. But then the question becomes, what stipulation could you add to make people try in this game? And this, this goes for... The MLB, the NHL, and the NFL. And I think the NHL really was on to something with their 3v3 tournament. Um, I think the NBA could easily do a 3v3 tournament of their own where actual players just form their own teams. I think that would be super fun. Um, but, you know, if you were trying to do a conference versus conference, you would need something where it would benefit the conference as a whole. It would benefit the players' teams on who was selected. And I just don't really know what you could add. Extra home games, extra incentives. It's it's really tough. But here's the stats for the West. Kevin Durant, um, I believe the starters were Kevin Durant, LeBron James, Nikola Jokic, Shai Gillis-Alexander, and Luka Doncic. I believe those were the starters for the team. Kevin Durant, 18 points, 5 rebounds, 5 assists, so a little 18-5-5. LeBron James only had 8 points, only played 14 minutes. He benched himself because he didn't want to, he's trying to nurse a minor injury he had. Nikola Jokic, 13 points, 9 rebounds, 4 assists. Uh, Shai Jealous Alexander, 31 points, 6 assists, and 4 rebounds. Currently in the MVP race, that Thunder player is absolutely balling, leading that young Thunder team to, uh, I believe, they're number 3 or 2 in the West. Luka Doncic, 7-7-7 in 23 minutes of play. 7 rebounds, 7 assists, 7 points. Didn't do much. Carl Anthony Downs, though, like I said, 50 points. Absolutely amazing. Steph Curry, 16 points, 8 assists, 5 rebounds. Not too shabby. Um, Stephen Curry, uh, Anthony Davis, 6 points, 8 assists, 8 rebounds. Yet again, didn't do much. Devin Booker, 15 points, 7 assists, 4 rebounds. Anthony Edwards, 4 points. Didn't even try in the 13 minutes he played. He that he just came. They I think they took him out or he took himself out just because he had no interest in being there. He's focused on winning a ring, not the All-Star game. Paul George had 13 points and Kawhi Leonard had 5. Everyone scored in this All-Star game. Moving to the East, who put up in a, a record-setting 211 points. The starters, uh, Giannis Antetokounmpo, you're starting forward. I mean, 23 points for him, not too bad. Jason Tatum, 20. No, pretty good. Bam Adebayo, 3 points. Played 17 minutes. I don't even know why he was starting then, if he only put up 3 points. Tyrese Alberton, 32 points for the guard. I mean, an absolute killer. Future of the league. Love him. Damian Lillard, 39 points. I think he hit like 11 threes or something when uh, the MVP for this game. Probably should have been Carl Anthony Towns. I think if you're scoring 50 points, you should win MVP, but... That again, it doesn't freaking matter. Um, the, who else? Uh, Jalen Brown, 36 points off the bench. Paulo Bonchero, nine rebounds, five assists, six points. Had more rebounds than other stats. Scotty Barnes, eight rebounds, 12 points. Jalen Brunson, uh, four, uh, four rebounds, 16 points. Tyrese Maxey had 10 points. Don Mitchell, nine points. Trey Young, seven assists, five 
points. And I mean, just overall, absolutely ridiculous. 146 total field goals attempted for the East, 143 for the West. Three-pointers, 97 for the East, 71 for the West. Crazy. There were only five free throws shot in this whole game. Total rebounds, 64 to 53 in favor of the Eastern Conference. More assists go to the West. Um, Only three blocks the whole game. Uh, 14 steals, though. You know, they're pretty sloppy. Yeah, they're pretty sloppy as with those steals. It then goes to the turnovers in general. 11 for the West, 14 for the East. Points in the paint, 100 for the West. And there are only three fouls the entire game. Three fouls. I don't even know. There's not much to say for this. The season wage is on, but, I mean, what what's there to what's there to do? What what are you gonna do? How are we gonna fix this? I don't know. Um, honestly, th- let's let's use ChatGPT. You know, I see a lot of professors asking people to use AI. Let us ask ChatGPT right now. How can we fix the NBA All Star Game? Because let me just tell you, ChatGPT is actually very useful. I was very skeptical of this whole AI thing, but I now that I use it more often, I I very much like it. It really does give great stuff. You can't take it exactly what it says, but you can certainly use it. So ChatGPT says fixing the NBA All Star Game to make it more engaging and competitive is a common topic of discussion among basketball fans. That's true, Chat. That is true, ChatGPT. Here are a number of ways to enhance the game. Number one, implementing the charity incentive. Allocate a portion of the proceeds from the all-star game to charitable causes and this could serve as motivation for players to perform at their best and i really like this one because you can't really offer these guys money i mean because they already make millions and millions of dollars per year so if you put it towards a charity and you kind of like try and get to them personally maybe they'll play more you know and you could even go as far to saying the losing team gets no money sent to charity it all goes to the winners and i think that might be able to light a fire not too bad. Number two is revise selection process. Modify the selection process for the all-star players to ensure that it accurately reflects the season's top performers. This might involve a combination of fan voting, player voting, and coach selection to create a more competitive and balanced roster. It already kind of does that. Um, it's more about getting them to play. Number three is introduce a draft system. Adopt a draft-style format to selecting teams similar to what the NBA has implemented since 2018. Captain select from each conference. Yeah, that's how it used to be the last few years. They finally changed it this year to go back to the old ways i don't really like that i like when it's east versus west it adds more of a more of like a you know conference versus conference is more fun incentivize competition offer monetary rewards or bonuses to the winning team and individual players for achieving performance milestones during the game um i just don't know what you could offer them maybe you know, it honestly comes back to uh, religious stuff when it's like how much material goods to achieve happiness and you realize that no matter how much money or whatever you get, it'll never bring you the happiness that friends, family, and the Lord can give you. So it's it's a touchy, touchy thing to try and incentivize people. Uh, number five is modify game format. Adjust the format of the game to encourage more competitive play. For example, reducing the game time or introducing specific rules such as eliminating the shot clock in the final minutes to prevent deliberate fouls or extending the three-point line for higher scoring opportunities. Could be fun. Some fun things you could throw in there. Increase the stakes. Um, I think that's just the biggest thing is what stakes could you do. Home court advantage in the NBA Finals for the conference represented by the winning All-Star team. I think that could be huge. I think that could be a good one where in the NBA Finals, the winning conference team gets home for all games for all four five six or seven games i think that could be a wild stipulation i say try it yeah nothing to lose no one will care 
Um, seven, integrate fan engagement. Allow fans to have a say in certain aspects of the game, such as selecting rules, halftime entertainment, or even participating in game challenges alongside the players. I really like that. I think that's something they could do. Expand the skills challenges. They already, they already continue to do that. Include a Legends game. Um, I don't really want to see old people <laughs> shooting balls. Nah. Experiment with formats, yeah. ChatGPT giving us some good options, but as for now, I mean, all we can do is just kind of hope that they come up with something to make it more exciting. We'll leave the NBA All-Star game in the past. Uh, doesn't really matter anymore. Um, I'll tell you what is also in the past, and that is UFC 100. For all my UFC fans, UFC 100 was kind of the first milestone, if you will. There have been, there've been three milestones in the time of the UFC, 100, 200, and the upcoming 300, which is looking absolutely massive. And UFC 100, I don't even think they knew what they had, but they had something special. And there's some interesting fighters on this card, some irrelevant ones. Let's take a look as we journey back to July 11th of 2009. That is right, UFC 100. And I am very perplexed by UFC 100. I won't lie, because you had... Two title fights on here, but for some reason it's listing that the main event was. This is on the official UFC stats page. The main event was John Fitch versus Paulo Tiago. I don't think that's right. If I'm being honest, or was it? Um, no, something's wrong here. Something is wrong here with the website. Yeah, where where what's going on? The the UFC stats page has a fight that was on the middle of the card at listed as the main event. So the official main event for UFC 100, there we go. It's it's been all sorted out. It was just my own my own mind. Sometimes my mind plays tricks on me, if you will. Um, but the main event was Brock Lesnar versus Frank Mir, the rematch, absolute killer of a fight. In the co-main event, George St. Pierre and Tiago Aldez, absolute banger. You also had Dan Henderson on here. I mean, amazing card. Let's start from the bottom. Our first prelim of the night was Shannon Gugardi taking on Matt Grice. Matt, the real one, Grice. And this fight ended two and a half minutes in round one when Shannon Guarty. Gugarty, Gugarty, interesting name, my friend, got a guillotine choke, and very impressive stuff, Shannon, uh, not the most impressive UFC career, went two and three, um, probably his most notable achievement was losing to Clay Guida, but beating Matt Grice, very, uh, very good for um, Shannon Gugarty, Matt Grice had went, how did he do, he went two and five in the UFC, uh, losses to Dennis Bermudez and Ricardo Lamas is the only things that uh, stand out to me. Interesting start to the card. They definitely weren't loading up the prelims like UFC 300 is. UFC 300 has massive prelims. Second by the evening, another round one guillotine choke. This round actually earned a submission of the night bonus. That's right. They used to do KO and submission of the night. Now it's just called performance. I really like that they chose to do a submission or KO of the night. But yeah, Tom Lawler submitted C.B. Dalloway in 55 seconds. Tom Lawler fought in the UFC until 2016. Fought some notable people, such as John Vionte, Corey Anderson. Um, but yeah, good win for Tom Lara. This was his second UFC fight. Um, after that, didn't really amount to anything. As for the guy who got submitted, C.B. Dalloway, he was actually in the UFC EA Sports Games. Um, would actually fight a numerous amount of fights in the UFC. Fought until 2018. I'll say some notable people he fought was Hector Lombard, who hit him after the bell and got disqualified. 
after round one, um, CB beat Ed Herman, lost to Michael Bisming, lost to Leo Machida, did beat Cesar Ferreira. Um, CB Dalloway never did much. And gained some in 55 seconds. Not the best look for you, CB. Dong Hyun Kim then fought TJ Grant to a decision. Dong Hyun Kim, the only reason I recognize him is because his last fight in the UFC was in 2017 where he got beat by Colby Covington. That's the only reason I know him. His uh, UFC losses were all to notable people. I mean, Colby, Tyron Woodley, Damian Maya, Carlos Condit, who all uh, finished. He actually owns wins over uh, Nate Diaz. Um, that's actually him. He owns a win over Nate Diaz and Matt Brown. Not too bad of a win for, uh, Dong Hyun Kim. He beat TJ Grant, who actually, after losing to Don Hyun Kim, would go 6-2 and two in the UFC, one of those losses to Johnny Hendricks, and he ended his UFC tenure on a five-fight win streak, including round one finishes of Matt Wyman and Gray Maynard. Huh, TJ Grant. I wonder what happened to you. He's like 40 now, so... Um, we finally get into a fun one. This was on the freaking prelims. John Jones, that's right, the GOAT of mixed martial arts. John Jones' second UFC fight was at UFC 100 on the prelims. It was his second UFC fight and his first finish. No, 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 no. Was it his first finish? Yes, he did. He finished Jake O'Brien in round two with a guillotine choke. That's so weird. Three guillotine chokes on the prelims. Um, John Jones, legend of the game. Uh, round one actually stood on the feet with Jake O'Brien. Round two uh, was able to uh, slinch on a guillotine choke, standing up against the cage, and submitted him on the feet. As we all know, John Jones has never lost officially. Um, an absolute killer. Hopefully, he'll be fighting later this year against Stipe Miocic. John Jones, you're an absolute legend. But as for this man, Jake O'Brien. Um, after losing to John Jones, he would lose to Gegard Musai, and then uh, I think he'd be done in the UFC. Uh, his four losses in the UFC to Andre Olowski, Cain Velasquez, John Jones, and Gegard Musai. So all champions, whether in the UFC or in other divisions. Wowza. John Jones, nice to see ya. Also on the prelims, this man is fighting on 100 and 200, and he's fighting on 300. Jim Effin Miller, Jim A-10 Miller, beat Mac Danzig on the prelims. Uh, actually took him down six of seven times uh, for ten and a half minutes of control time. Wow, man, Jim Miller dominating this Mac Danzig guy. Who even is Mac Danzig? Not a name I'm familiar with. Um, this guy has lost to Joe Lazon, Melvin Gullard, um, Clay Guida. Yeah, this guy sucks. But Jim Miller, legend of the game. I think he, I think he has the most wins or finishes in UFC history. Absolutely amazing. Love to see a Jim Miller. I can't believe we get to see one UFC 300. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. And with that, I think we had one more. One more prelim fight, and that was Mark Coleman versus Stephen Bonner. Uh, Mark Coleman, former UFC heavyweight champion, if I'm not mistaken, back in the early um, 2000s, late 1960s. Yeah, this guy holds a headbutt win over Don Fry. Headbutts used to be uh, legal. Wins over Gary Goodridge, Dan Severn. He actually started out his UFC career 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 0, all with round 1 finishes. Incredible losses. First probe out to Marie Smith. After that, went on a little losing streak. Fought in the pride uh, for a while. Uh, owned owned Don Fry every time they fought. Actually got armbarred by Fedor Emelianko in round 1. 
Um, came back to the UFC and uh, UFC uh, UFC 100 beat Stephen Bonner. Actually, I think he just out grappled Stephen Bonner in this before retiring. Afterwards, yeah, Mark Coleman nine minutes forty nine seconds control time. Stephen Bonner piecing him up on the feet. Rest in peace to Stephen Bonner, by the way. Um, who fought a who's who of notable UFC fighters. I mean, John Jones, Anderson Silva, Forrest Griffin, Rashad Evans, number of killers. But Mark Coleman getting a win on UFC 300, uh, 100, always in the history books. Getting into, oh, no, one more, one more prelim. If you wait, one, two, three, four, five. No, our first prelim of the evening belonged to, not prelim, main card, if I can get my words going correctly, was a middleweight bout between, I kid you not, Yoshihiro Akiyami and Alan Belcher. Uh, Yoshihiro won a split decision, and this was the fight of the night, Yoshihiro um, after winning this, would proceed to go on a four-fight losing streak, finishing his UFC career one in five. Ooh, yikes! Not too, not too good there. As for Alan Belcher, um, you know, after this, would actually go on a four-fight winning streak, then end his UFC career on a two-fight losing streak. So yeah, nothing fun there, but one fight of the night, you know, good, good stuff. Yoshiro used his grappling to win. After that, John Fitch would outgrapple Paulo Thiago to a decision win. 12 minutes, 21 seconds of control time on 4-4 on takedowns. Paulo Thiago threw up five submission attempts. And on the UFC stats page, this is listed as the main event. That is not accurate. That is not accurate. If anyone checks, the main event is Brock Lesnar. Now we get into some more memorable moments. The top final three fights of the evening, all notable in the UFC. Dan Henderson, Michael Bisming. This is one of the nastiest KOs I've ever seen, I've ever witnessed. Didn't witness this live. 2009 was not watching UFC. Um, but Dan freaking Henderson, oh my goodness, former middleweight title challenger, former strike force champion, I mean... He he clips, he knocks Michael Bisming out cold, like knocks him out cold. And as he's falling, follows him down with the nastiest elbow forearm shot I've ever seen directly to his face. Referee steps in just in time. It was absolutely brutal. Michael Bisming, it was Mario Yamasaki. I mean, that should say things. Notably bad <laughs> UFC ref. But man, crazy though after this, Michael Bisming. Would uh, manage to actually rally from getting knocked out by um, Dan Henderson. It would take him eight years to get back to a title shot where he would win, and he actually would defend his belt against Dan Henderson in 2016 and get revenge. Michael Bisbing, legend of the game. Now he's in the commentary booth, but on this night, he was getting brutally knocked out. Getting into the co-main event, George St. Pierre, uh, the greatest, one of the greatest welterweights of all time. I do think he's better than Kamaru Usman when it comes to welterweight greatness. Uh, very close, though. George would absolutely destroy Tiago Alves in the co-main event, winning a unanimous decision, beating him across all five rounds. Totals from the fight, 148 total strikes to 72, landed a knockdown in the third round. Uh, 10 of 12 on takedowns for 13 minutes at control time. Absolutely ridiculous. Tiago Alves did absolutely nothing this whole fight. Um, yeah, just another classic George St. Pierre performance. But the main event, one of the funnest moments, if that's even a word, as Brock Lesnar defended his heavyweight championship against Frank Mir. Absolutely obliterating him. Absolutely destroying him. Getting around to TKO. It's such a vicious knockout. From Brock Lesnar, of course, we all know Brock Lesnar is being erased from the history of WWE and UFC due to him trying out to be a creep. 
turning him out to be probably someone who visited Epstein's Island, if we're being honest. But, I mean, at this night, destroyed Frank Muir, which was satisfying to see. And uh, Frank Muir was never the same after this loss. Let me tell you that. this is, Frank Muir was never, never the same. He got messed up by the beast Brock Lesnar. But uh, Brock, you know, wasn't, uh, wasn't really the same after this. But obviously beat Shane Carwin. At uh, UFC 116, but would then lose to Cain Velasquez, lose to Alistair Overeem. His win over Mark Hunt would be overturned. Uh, the downfall of Brock Lesnar. UFC 100, not the best UFC card ever. I'm pretty sure UFC 298 was better than this card. But as we look through it, John Jones, Jim Miller, Mark Coleman, Dan Henderson, Michael Bisping, George St. Pierre, Brock Lesnar, uh, Frank Mir. I mean, you got some notable, notable fighters. And when we look at UFC 200, we're going to see some more familiar names uh, that come to mind. But UFC 100, uh, very, very good to look back and see what uh, what times used to be like. And I'll tell you what times did used to be like. They used to be ruled by powerful people. And they, they honestly are still ruled by powerful people. So how can you be aware of the powers that control you? And how can you obtain power? Well, you can read the book, The 48 Laws of Power. That's right, a book. I've been reading for a while. Of course, we always cover a couple laws. There are 48 laws when it comes to power, officially written by Robert Greene. This book is an absolute masterpiece. And we have two more laws to bring to you today, Law 35 and 36. So let's get into it before we recap UFC 298. So yes, the 48 laws of power. And law number 35, master the art of timing. This one is super, super important. I just feel in general, you should know how to um, master timing. Timing is very important for all things. But here's what the judgment says. Never seem to be in a hurry. Hurrying betrays a lack of control over yourself and over time. Very true. Always seem patient as if you know that everything will come to you eventually. Become a detective of the right moment. Sniff out the spirit of the times, the trends that will carry you to power. Learn to stand back when the time is not yet ripe and to strike fiercely when it has reached fruition. Ooh. This is so accurate. You have to really learn how to master your timing, how to just be patient, how to know when to attack, and to just never seem to be in a hurry. Because when people seem to be in a hurry, it's really, it's annoying, it's a turnoff, it's kind of like, um, am I not a priority? It's kind of like, do they not have all their stuff together? It is it's very, very fascinating. And the story it kind of uh, uses is this man named Joseph Fauci, who in the 1700s French Revolution time period managed to stay in power in his realm by always knowing when to who to side with, no always knowing when to leave, when to go, what moves to make because he had mastered timing and he lived through so many different uh, eras of kings and queens. He lived through Napoleon twice. You know, when Napoleon Rose to power, he was with him. When Napoleon got exiled, he stayed away from him. When he came back, he came back to Napoleon, and Napoleon still gave him power. And from that era came a quote by Napoleon Bonaparte, of course, one of the most notable notable um, people in history, come conquester, if you will. A space we can recover, time never. Space we can recover, time never. I, that was a powerful quote, and I think we found our quote of the week. I think we have found our quote of the week. If, if you all know, if you all know, we have a quote of the week every single week. And um, I think this is this is our quote. Space we can recover, time can never. We can never recover. So some of the uh, keys to power, um, 
when it comes to time are uh, the three kinds of time. So there are three kinds of time for us to deal with. First, there is long time, which is the drawn out, you know, the years long kind of time that must be managed with patience um, and gentle guidance. Our handling of long time should be mostly defensive. This is the art of not reacting impulsively. Um, it's waiting for opportunity, okay, of sorts, if you will. Uh, there's also forced time. Forced time is the next one, which is the short-term time that we can manipulate as an offensive weapon, upsetting the timing of our opponents in life. Um, and then finally, there's end time when a plan must be executed with speed and force. We have waited, found the moment, and must not hesitate. A lot of fun stuff. Here's a uh, here's a fun little story from the fables of Robert Dobsley, who wrote a lot of fables in the 1700s about the trout and the gudgeon. A fisherman in the month of May stood angling on the bank of the Thames with an artificial fly. He threw his bait with so much art that a young trout was rushing toward it. When she was prevented by her mother, never, said she, my child, be too precipitate when there is a possibility of danger. That is, when it comes to grabbing the fly that hit the water. Take due time to consider before you risk any action that may be fatal. How know you whether your appearance be indeed a fly or the snare of an enemy? Well, I love how the 1700s really messes up my grammar. Um, let someone else make the experience experiment before you. If it be a fly, he will very probably elude the first attack and the second may be made, if not with success at least with safety. She had no longer sooner spoken than a gudgeon seized the pretended fly and became an example to the giddy daughter of the importance of her mother's counsel. So that sort of just comes to, I mean, not really leaping at your first opportunity, but also being aware, you know, knowing the mother trout knew that a normal fly would pull away at first before being caught the second time and to not go exactly for that. And I wonder if fish actually think like that, because you know, sometimes I think fish don't have brains, but maybe they do. Maybe they do. Here's an image for you guys. The hawk. Patiently and silently, it circles the sky. High above, all seeing with its powerful eyes. Those below have no awareness that they are being tracked. Suddenly, when the moment arrives, the hawk swoops down with speed that cannot be defended against before its prey knows what has happened. The bird's vice-like talents have carried it up into the sky. Be a hawk. Always be careful of your timing if you will always make sure to strike when people least expect it and to always seize the opportunity at hand here's something from a william shakespeare play where he uh, his uh, portrayal of julius caesar there is a tide in the affairs of men which taken at the flood leads on to fortune omitted all the voyage of their life is bound in shallows and in misery so when you are taken in the flood it leads to misfortune in all the voyage of your life. You are now bound to the shallows and the misery. Um, that honestly sounded more profound on the paper than when I read it out loud. Honestly, I don't really know what it means. But when it comes to this law, there is no reversal. There is no power to be gained in letting go of the reins and adapting to whatever time brings. You have to seize time. As impossible as that sounds like you can't alter time. Well, you can you can honestly alter your own time. You can not live to how other people want you to fall into time, okay? Create your own days. Create your own timing for things. Um, sometimes, you know, if you have to wait on people, say, I got other stuff to do, and just go. Just go, you know? This law always has lots of interpretations, but just in a more broad sense, you know, master timing. Master time. Certainly, I need to work on it. I have been working on it. I think I do pretty good with mastering my timing. We'll see how it continues to improve. Law number 36 is disdain things you cannot have, ignoring them is the best revenge. Disdain things you cannot have, 
ignoring them is the best revenge. Hmm. Here's what the judgment says. By acknowledging a petty problem, you give it existence and credibility. The more attention you pay an enemy, the stronger you make him. And a small mistake is often made worse and more visible when you try to fix it. It is sometimes best to leave things alone. If there is something you want but cannot have, show contempt for it. The less interest you reveal, the more superior you seem. Love this. Absolutely love this. And something I want to start working on is just if I have a small problem, a small inconvenience, you know, I, I, I cannot let it ruin my day. I cannot let it bother me. I have to just move past it. You can also compare this to when someone insults you. The best thing to do when someone insults you is to kind of just look at them, laugh, and just ignore it. Or not even just laugh, or even just like ignore it. Ignoring stuff is honestly some of the best things you can do. I don't even think it's laughing off. I think it's the ignoring part. Ignoring them is the best revenge. And when you disdain things you cannot have, it's not that you go like you see a fast car and go, ugh, I want that. You ignore the car. And then later on, when you're driving it, you appreciate it. I think that's what it's going for. Um, the example again, the transgression of the law was when uh, Woodrow Wilson. Uh, there was this man named Pancho Villa who in the Mexicans in the early 1900s in Mexico revolution broke out. He sort of became this folk hero of like giving back to the people, but then eventually he kind of became a villain. We start robbing people, start robbing a new, he actually led a raid in a New Mexico town and killed some soldiers of the Americans. And Woodrow Wilson sent a bunch of his troops down there, you know, handle it, bring me this guy. He sent like 16,000 to get one guy. They couldn't find him. So he sent more and more and more and more. And eventually 123,000 Americans, uh, soldiers from the army, were looking for this Pancho Villa guy and could never find him. And they had to retreat and actually turned Pancho Villa back into a hero in Mexico. And that's because Wilson just couldn't ignore Pancho Villa. He had to engage and it became his downfall. Here's a fun little story, though. The fox and the grapes. A starving fox saw a cluster of luscious-looking grapes of purplish luster dangling above him on a trellis frame. He would have dearly liked them for his lunch, but when he tried and failed to reach the bunch, he said, Ah, well, it's more than likely they're not sweet, good only for green fools to eat. Wasn't he wise to say they were unripe rather than wine and gripe? Sometimes when an opportunity passes you, you can't complain that you didn't seize it. You have to understand that it was not meant for you. Hmm? Think about this to all the fellas, all the girls out there that, you know, you have a crush on a guy, you have a crush on a girl, and you want her so bad, but they end up going for a different guy. You have to go, oh, I guess they weren't good for me, and move on. Or, you know, you're supposed to, you're like, you're doing, studying for a test, you know, you're trying super hard, you take the test, it doesn't go well, you go, hmm, I guess I wasn't meant to do good on this test. I'll do better on the next. And you move on. You cannot let things bother you. Or in the instance of our fox and his grapes, if you miss grabbing them, you have to understand that, hey, maybe they weren't meant to be grabbed. And you move on. Here's an observance of the law. Um, this comes from the 1500s. When King Henry VIII of England decided that he had to find a way to get rid of his wife, um, Catherine of Aragon, but uh, the Vatican, the head priest there, the cardinal, he, he wouldn't allow for um, him to break up with his wife or just stop being with his wife. So King Henry VIII ignored, ignored his wife, actually banished her, actually ignored all things of the Vatican that said like, hey, you know, I do not acknowledge this divorce. He just ignored that. He married a different woman. He had kids with her. He basically ignored every single thing that the Vatican said, and it actually led 
to a separation from the Vatican's power with, um, where, where was this at? Was this in uh, England at the time? Just because he didn't give it any power. And this actually led to the formation of the Church of England because, you know, he just stopped paying attention to what the head cardinal, head priest was saying or whatever of the Vatican. Um, and I've explained that very vaguely. I could read this, but I mean, it's like two pages long. But that's kind of just a dumbed-down version of it. Is he ignored, basically, what someone else was saying, who, who didn't really have that much authority over him in the first place, but he stopped giving him any power and eventually led to him seizing power in his own. Here is a um, um, quote by a Caravan of uh, Dreams, Idris Shah. Man, kick him. He'll forgive you. Flatter him. He may or may not see through you, but ignore him and he'll hate you. When people, when you get ignored by people, there's this fascination with wanting to know why, with wanting to achieve their, um, how do I put it, wanting to achieve their approval, if you will. And it is very, very fascinating. I don't know what it is with it. Here's something else in regards to um, not letting things uh, or just uh, not letting things bother you. And it's about the monkey and the peas. The monkey was carrying two handfuls of peas. One little pea dropped out. All right, one little pea dropped out of a ton, of a plethora. He tried to pick it up, and he spilled 20. He then tried to pick up the 20 and spilled them all. Then he lost his temper, scattered the peas in all directions, and ran away. Fables by Leo Tolstoy. And you have to think about things. How often when you are angry, you do something, and it leads to more harm. Okay, you cannot let those things bother you. All right, the keys to power is that desire often creates paradoxical effects. The more you want something, the more you chase after it, the more it eludes you. How often are we eluded by the things we want most? Most often the case. That is what happens. And oftentimes, you know, this is kind of a double-edged sword, this law. A part of it is ignoring things, and another part of it is not letting things bother you that are small. You know, there's a, a couple elements to it. Here's an image for you, the tiny wound, a little tiny gash on your arm. It is small but painful and irritating. You try all sorts of medicaments. You complain, you scratch, and you pick at the scab. Doctors only make it worse, transforming the tiny wound into a grave matter. If only you had left the wound alone, letting time heal it and freeing yourself of worry. You must play the card of content with care and delicacy. Most small problems will vanish on their own if you leave them be. Now, obviously, the reversal, you know, some sometimes... Uh, problems can grow and fester if you don't attend to them. But for a majority of your smaller things, leave it be. It'll work its way out. That's that's the case for this law, and that's where we're going to leave it be. All right, what was that Napoleon quote, though? That, that quote I absolutely love. That's quote of the week. Space can be recovered, time never. How often are we just caught in the illusion of time, and we forget to live in the present. So very, very good. I very much enjoyed that. Thank you, Robert Green. Very much love the 48 Laws of Power. And we're reaching the end, folks. We're reaching the end of the book. And just as we're about to reach the end of the book, in the next coming few days, we are reaching the end of this episode. That is right. We have one more subject to talk about, and I'm so pumped for it. I'm absolutely, I'm absolutely, what is it, um... What word am I thinking of? Exuberant? Exuberant? Is that a good word to describe it? I'm exuberant to talk about UFC 298, recapping, previewing. I love talking about UFC. So let's round out this episode. Let's talk about UFC 298. Then let's go kick this week's buck. Boom. 
butt. Did I say buck or butt? If it's a, well, if we're hunting, it's a buck. We shoot the buck. But if it's, it's weak, we're kicking its butt. You know, why not? Why not? Let's, uh, let's kick things off with the prelims. I did mention that I went three and two on my main card predictions and I went nine and two overall. If we did include the one fight that I wasn't able to predict, I would have been nine and three. So nonetheless, nine correct predictions out of, uh, 12 or 11 fights. That's still pretty, pretty good. So, let's go to the first prelim of the night. We kicked off the night with a woman's flyweight matchup between the ranked number 15th Andrea Lee and the unranked Miranda Maverick. And lo and behold, I mean, it goes 50-50 with these women fights to open up cards. I swear they do, but my correct prediction of Miranda Maverick came to fruition as she won a unanimous decision. Totals from the fight 66 significant strikes for the Maverick, 36 for Lee, 106 total strikes from Miranda Maverick, 59 for Andrea Lee, 3 takedowns from Miranda, 2 for Andrea, 3 minutes of control time for Miranda, 42 seconds for Andrea Lee. Now I'm going to stay here, um, 30-27 across the board, Miranda Maverick handled business, good win for her, and this will be Miranda Maverick's second straight win, 4-1, uh, her last five since 2020, not, uh, not too shabby, as for Andrea Lee, that's her fourth straight loss, all by decision, I don't know how much longer she'll be around. Good win for Miranda Maverick. She'll move into the rankings at number 15. She does hold a loss to number 14, but maybe a fight against number 13 ranked Casey O'Neill could be in her future. Really like that fight for her. Miranda Maverick, good grappler, can strike two. Good win for her. Nothing else much more to say, but uh, yeah, good stuff for her. That was a first of two woman fights on the card. Moving on, we had Oban Elliott making his UFC debut, coming off the Dan White's Contender Series against Val Woodburn. And after experiencing an early knockdown by Val Woodburn, fought back beautifully, would dominate the rest of the fight. Total 70 significant strikes for Oban, 23 for Val. 136 total strikes for Oban, 30 for Val, so outstruck him by 106. Three takedowns for Oban, two for Val, nine minutes control time for Oban, two minutes for Val Woodburn. Oban handled business, and after getting dropped, his most dominant round was round one, round two just as dominant, round three a bit more close, but Oban absolutely brilliant. I predicted he would win by decision. He did, and that's actually Oban's sixth straight win. Good stuff for the Welsh gangster. As for Val Woodburn, his second straight loss, second straight career loss, I doubt he'll be returning. Oban, plenty of fighters in the welterweight division for you to grapple with. Excited to see what the UFC does for you next. Moving into our next fight at welterweight, I said Danny Barlow would get a round one knockout, but he instead waited until round three to knock out Josh Quinlan. I mean, this is one of my best predicting cards I've ever made. I was on fire this card. Danny Barlow, 8-0 now, left hand to God is his nickname, and his left hand actually knocked out another guy. Absolutely crazy. Danny Barlow gets his fifth knockout victory incredible I mean back and forth the whole fight but Danny Barlow was just out striking him every round I mean round one 35 total strikes to 11 round two 36 to 21 round three 24 to 7 dropped Josh once dropped I thought he dropped him like three times in a row but they only registered one as a knockdown but basically laid on the pressure in round three took it to him dominant win for Danny Barlow the boxing looked amazing 
As for Josh Quinlan, this is very tough. All right, after starting out his career, perfect 6-0. and I mean, 6-0 and with a no contest, so seven fight on beaten streak. That one no contest was a fight he actually won that was overturned. 2023 lost the decision. 2024 gets TKO'd in round number uh, three. I guess they might give him one more chance, but Danny Barlow, welcome to the welterweight division. I would match up Danny Barlow and Oban Elliott since they both fought. They're both in the welterweight division, but I would rather them go different ways, maybe meet down the line. Danny, very, very happy for you. And I mean... He was just locked in. I mean, you know, that left hand, it's not just the power he has with it. It's the accuracy. I mean, I felt like every punch he threw was just hitting Quinlan in the face. Quinlan just kept getting rocked. And Barlow stood on business. He's a gangsta, all right? The Welsh gangsta, Oban Elliott. The, uh, I don't know. I don't want to say anything offensive. But Danny Barlow, I love you. Then we got into my fate. Oh my gosh, my most excited prelim I was looking forward to as Brenson Ribeiro took on Zhang Ming Yang. And I went bold and said Ming Yang Zhang. I mean, I said he was going to get a submission. But instead, Zhang decided to get a round one knockout. Not just a TKO, a knockout. Knocks Brenson Ribeiro out clean in a minute and 41 seconds. For his 17th professional victory, 17th finish, his 11th knockout of his career. So impressive. Brenson Ribeiro, uh, unfortunately losing his UFC debut, but I mean, I'm sure they'll bring him back. But Zhang Mingyong, so impressive. And Ribeiro, he was landing a bit, but once, oh my goodness, once Mingyang connected, it was kind of a... Kind of just like a straight, honestly. It was kind of a straight, if you will. Brett Ribeiro went down, landed some follow-ups, but he was already unconscious. Ming Yang, the mountain tiger, remaining, remaining. Just incredible. I mean, and this was his 10th straight win. I mean, 10th straight win. Super impressive. Ribeiro's three-fight winning streak is snapped. But man, light heavyweight division, look out. Zhang Ming Yang is coming for you all. Let me just tell you that. And... I don't want to throw him straight to the rankings, but if you were, I mean, you got Dominic Reyes, Dustin Jacoby, Alonzo Menfield. You got a lot of guys at the bottom who he could potentially fight, but that one really lit a fire under me. Really had me happy. Zhang Ming Yang bringing it to the people. Good knockout. And he earned a performance bonus. Got a 50K performance bonus for that beautiful, beautiful knockout. Next prelim, it was a boring one. Rinya hybrid Nakamura, my one, uh, not my favorite Japanese fighter, but uh, my second. I'll say he's my second favorite Japanese fighter. I love Tatsu Terra. You know, I thought he would get a finish here, but um, instead, Rinya took on Carlos Vera, who did the old Ryan Hall approach and literally just shot for like leg locks the whole fight tried to pull guard tried to do like a jujitsu approach and it didn't work and it led to ring nakamura getting three of three takedowns for 13 minutes and three seconds of control time this was absolutely wild no 10-8 somehow i mean round two four minutes 34 seconds of control time are you kidding me um ring nakamura outstrikes him significantly 38 to 12 very unfortunate Ringa couldn't even get the finish here. Vera made it so difficult. It was sloppy. And apparently Joe Rogan, I didn't really listen to the commentary for this whole card because I was like, just it just wasn't really on. But apparently Joe Rogan was being biased towards Carlos Vera for his jiu-jitsu approach. It just wasn't working. But what can you say? Good win for Ringa Nakamura. Improves to 9-0. He's now 3-0 in the UFC. 5-0 uh, under UFC promotions if you include the road to the UFC. Um, but man, good stuff for Ringa. 
good bantamweight as for Carlos Vera, his fourth professional defeat. I mean, little to be desired. I doubt we'll have him back, uh, which is a shame. I mean, he was actually accompanied to the ring by Mark Zuckerberg. I think he trains with Mark Zuckerberg, um, which I find very odd, but... What are you going to do? Ring in Nakamura. There's plenty of unranked bantamweights for you to fight. If, it, if I were to give him a ranked opponent, number 15 ranked Ricky Simone would be a fun one for him. But yeah, that'll do it for Carlos Vera. Ring in Nakamura, though, just getting started. Second last fight of the night. It was supposed to be Marcos Rodriguez de Lima and Justin Taffa in the men's heavyweight division. But unfortunately, Justin Taffa pulled out right before uh, the weigh-ins with an injury. And instead, his younger brother, Junior Taffa, stepped in, weighed in, and took on Marcos Rodriguez de Lima. And it is unfortunate because uh, I did predict Justin Taffa to win this. Um, so I'm not going to count this fight because I didn't even really like change my pick at all. Cause I was kind of like, um, I don't know if I want to pick junior Tafa, you know, I don't know if I want to pick his younger brother. I'm glad I didn't make it official because Marcos Ruggio de Lima handled business. That's right. Marcos Ruggio de Lima, the number 15th ranked men's heavyweight in the world, just used his leg kicks to brutalize junior Tafa in round number two, hit him with a leg kick and it dropped him, got dropped with a leg kick. The 16th leg kick knockout TKO, if you will, UFC history, they hit him with one leg kick. He dropped. That was that. In round one, absolutely dominated, fifth dominated uh, Junior Taffa, 55 total strikes to 10. Um, landed a takedown, two at three minutes of control time. This was all Marco Sergio de Lima, and this is a good way to rebound after losing to Derek Lewis. This now makes him 3-1 and one, his last four. Not too bad, Marco Sergio de Lima, currently ranked 15th. I think he's better than number 14th ranked Rodrigo Nascimento, so I'd move Marcos up to 14. But I say we rebook this fight against Justin Taffa. I mean, I love Justin Taffa. It was a shame I couldn't see him fight. Uh, but yeah, unfortunate stuff. But actually, you know, this was Marco Sergio de Lima's 14th knockout and 17th professional finish of his 22 pro fights. Very impressive stuff. Um, Marco Sergio de Lima, I think he should fight Justin Taffa nonetheless. As for Junior Taffa, this is his second pro defeat. Um, not, I mean, what more do you want from the guy? He was not prepared. He stepped in on a day's notice. He got paid for it. But um, yeah. Not gonna, not gonna make, uh, not gonna get in the win column here. Unfortunately, I'll. Uh, actually, he was supposed to fight coming up. He was supposed to fight Carl Williams March twenty third. Man, should have stuck with Carl Williams instead of taking out Marcos Rogero de Lima. But respect to ya. Um, like maybe could have gotten a performance bonus, but they didn't give it to him because, well, I mean, he Marcos Rogero de Lima beat a guy on a day's notice. There's nothing too impressive about that. Uh, Junior Taffa, though, he's young, I believe. How old is he? He's only 27? Only 27? Not too bad. That's from Marcos Joe de Lima. 38. Still getting TKO victories. Good for ya. But yeah, he maybe will move up a spot in the rankings, but I still think he should fight Justin Taffa. Then we get into our final prelim of the night. It did not disappoint. It was sloppy. It wasn't beautiful. The, um, but you know what? It was at one fight of the night. These two women went to war. Amanda Lemos and Mackenzie Dern. And the weirdest thing about this fight. By the way. By the way, we predicted Amanda Lemos' decision. We nailed Amanda Lemos' decision on the prelims. We nailed Obon Elliott' decision, Andrea Lee' decision, Danny Barlow' knockout, Ming Yang Zong finish. I mean, we were amazing out here. I even knew Ringa Nakamura would win. But the one thing that I find very weird is I played this fight in EA Sports UFC 5. 
Okay, I played this fight in the game, and it played out almost eerily similar in real life. Amanda Lemos winning on the feet, Mackenzie Dern winning on the ground. It is just, it was one of the wildest fights, one of the wildest fights. I mean, round one, kicking off. Amanda Lemos clearly having the power on the feet, but Mackenzie Dern takes her down. Landed one of one on takedowns for two minutes, 45 seconds control time. Round one, very close, very close. But round freaking two kicks off, and oh my Goodness, the referee Mike Beltran decided he wanted to see a murder as Amanda Lemos drops Mackenzie Dern and landed so many unanswered punches. It was absolutely ridiculous. And instead, instead of finishing her, by the way, drops Mackenzie Dern, keeps punching her on the ground. Mackenzie Dern makes it to her feet. Amanda Lemos takes her down and holds her in half guard for the final two minutes of the of the fight. I mean, and that's just control time. You probably didn't even hold her that much. It was like half the half the round. Amanda Lemos was on the ground and even got reversed. She got reversed to the bottom. Um, Amanda Lemos outstruck her 24 to 8 significantly in round number two. Uh, round number three kicks off. Same situation. I mean, Mackenzie turns his face is all busted up, but Amanda Lemos, you know, lands a takedown. Mackenzie Dern reverses it. Uh, they're, they're swapping control time. Two minutes, 45 seconds for Mackenzie Dern. A minute 53 for Amanda Lemos in the final round. Goes to the judge's decision. It was a 50-50 fight. 29-28, um, 28-29, and 28-29. Unanimous decision for Amanda Lemos. Um, when we look at the significant strikes, significantly had 20 more strikes than her. Total strikes, Mackenzie Dern had three. Takedowns, Mackenzie Dern, one of three. Amanda Lemos, two for two. Four minutes control time for Lemos. Six minutes for Mackenzie Dern. I don't think this should have won fight of the night, but it does not bother me that much because it was still a good fight. Very good rebound win for Amanda Lemos. Um, and as for Mackenzie Dern, just back-to-back wars against Jessica Andrade and now Amanda Lemos. Uh, I think she really needs to take a break. I think Mackenzie Dern needs to return later in the year. Um, she's currently ranked number seven. You know, I could easily see her getting passed by the number eight or nine or ten women. But later in the year, let's give Mackenzie Dern a lower-ranked opponent. I'm feeling Tabitha Ritchie. I'm feeling maybe someone else on the come-up in the women's strawweight division. But Amanda Lemos, currently ranked number three, was supposed to fight number two ranked Tatiana Suarez. I think that fight should still be made, and I would really favor Tatiana in that after seeing just how easy Amanda Lemos can become outgrappled. The bad fight IQ of going for a takedown we can easily knock out. Um, what's her face, Mackenzie Dern? But uh, fun, fun stuff nonetheless. Uh, sorry for Mackenzie Dern, two fight losing streak now, one in three in her last four. But as for Amanda Lemos, you know, only two losses professionally. To uh, Jessica Andrade and Zhang Weili, and to Leslie Smith, but that was back in 2017. That's not that's irrelevant. Okay, not too bad. This had me in great vibes heading into the main card. I was in, I was absolutely in high vibes. And then you know what? I did this to myself. I picked with my heart as we got into the main card. As Anthony Hernandez took on Roman Kopilov, and I was really rooting for Roman Kopilov because I don't know why I'm just not the biggest Anthony Hernandez fan. And Anthony Hernandez's pressure was just relentless. Took, managed to finally, he went 3 of 14 on takedowns. 3 of 14 on takedowns. Roman defended 10 in round number 1. 1 of 11 on takedowns for Anthony Hernandez in round number 1. But pressure, too great for Anthony Hernandez, for uh, Roman Kopilov, that is, as he gets submitted with a rear naked choke in round number 2. And by the way, survived a really tight rear naked choke, but was just too too out of it after surviving one. Easily got locked up again after escaping. And Anthony Hernandez's win streak improves to five. And by the way, four finishes of those five fights, three of those being submissions. All different submissions, too. Rear naked choke, guillotine choke, arm triangle, even as an anaconda choke earlier in his career. 
Not too shabby, Anthony. Not too shabby. Actually, that's Anthony Hernandez's eighth career uh, submission win, tenth career finish. How about that? This does snap Roman Kapilov's four-fight win streak, but just adds to uh, how good he is. Took this fight on short notice. Big reward. Um, didn't didn't come out on top. Uh, short notice fighters. 0-2 on this card. How unfortunate that is. Might have been Val Woodburn might have stepped down on short notice. Might have been 0-3, actually. But, um... Yeah, I will say the one thing for Anthony Hernandez, who is ranked 15th at men's middleweight. I don't know if he's going to move up in the rankings. Might, might with this win, but he'll be fighting up nonetheless, is that Roman is a better striker than Anthony Hernandez. Anthony just had pressure, just had pressure, kept pressuring him, but... More significant strikes to Roman Kopilov, 35 to 34. More to- more total strikes, 41 to 39. Landed 61% of his significant strikes. Find that very fascinating. Um, Anthony Hernandez's pressure just unrelenting, unrelenting, if you will. Um, good, good, good win for Anthony. I don't really know what to say. What's next for him? Uh, number 14 ranked Kyle Barallo in men's middleweight will be taking on number 12 ranked Paul Craig. Chris Curtis could be a potential option. Chris Curtis is coming off a big win over Mark Andre Barriut. Um, you also have Joe Pfeiffer could be an option. I think Joe Pfeiffer and Roman Kopilov will actually be better two strikers. That could be fun. Um, as for Anthony Hernandez, I think, you know, the Apex, they're clearly not doing good main events. I mean, the next few Apex main events we have are Tai Ivasa, Marcin Tibera. We got Amanda Hebas and Rose Namajunas, uh, Shmil Gaziev and Jarzinga Rosenstruck. So I really think you could do something like Chris Curtis and Anthony Hernandez, Jack Hermanson, Anthony Hernandez, Ro- Roman Doladiza, Anthony Hernandez. There's a lot of options at middleweight of what could be next for Anthony Hernandez, but sky's the limit. I predicted this fight incorrectly, but after this, I did pretty good. So let's move into the next fight because we had four more fights and I was absolutely jonesing for all these fights. And I say a majority didn't disappoint. We kicked it off. Number two, Marab Dovashelli. Number three, Henry Sudo in the men's bantamweight division. A bantamweight title shot on the line. And Marab the machine, Dovashelli. I just couldn't believe it. That boy is so good. Extends his win streak to 10 fights. 10 fight win streak for the machine. Absolutely incredible. Um, After almost getting knocked out in round number one, Henry Sudom hit him with a nice little combo. Um, Rob was able to wear that off, dominates him in round two, dominates him in round three. And Henry Sudo said he was going to retire if he loses. Um, he was taking off his gloves afterwards, but Dana White said no. All right, we're not even going to give him the mic as um, Rob wins a unanimous decision. Uh, Dana White said that he's like, hey, guess what? You don't get to retire in 2020 and then get another retirement here. This is Marab's moment. I absolutely love that. So round two, I mean, Marab just took, by the way, five of 11 on takedowns for Marab. That is a 45% takedown for Marab. Only attempted 11. Super good. Henry went one of seven. One of seven. And Marab even attempted a submission. Attempted a guillotine choke to end round two. Almost submitted Henry Sudo. He was talking to freaking Mark Zuckerberg ringside. He was even out striking Henry Cejudo in the end of the fight. Picked him up in the final round. Carried him across the ring and slammed him down in front of Dana White and Mark Zuckerberg. Marab was on absolute fire and has earned a men's bantamweight title fight against the winner of uh, Sean O'Malley and Marlon Vera. Absolutely amazing from Marab, and we predicted the Marab decision. Oh, man, it was beautiful. 
Four minutes, 23 seconds control time. Not that much, but 167 total strikes to 54. 74 significant strikes to 29. Henry Cejudo was humbled so hard and is just so ironic that Henry Cejudo retired when he did. Because, I mean, at that time, Henry Cejudo would have been fighting people like Frankie Edgar. All right, Piotr Young, Corey Sanhagen, all still good. Nonetheless, Rob Font, potentially. Um, But, I mean, you know, having to fight Aljamain Sterling and Marab back-to-back, very, very brutal. Good stuff for Marab. Excellent, excellent win. He'll be taking on the winner of Sean O'Malley and Marlon Vera. And not to spoil my 299 prediction coming at you in three weeks, but, yeah, I'm thinking it's going to be O'Malley and Marab in the summer or something. Going to be beautiful. Um, as for Henry Cejudo, I mean, this is tough. This is very tough. Henry Cejudo is now on a two-fight losing streak. Um, second time in his career he's been on a two-fight losing streak. He's been out-grappled his last two fights. He's been outstruck his last two fights. He's been out-everything, and he performed so good against Aljamain, but Marab just had his number, and this has been the best Marab we've seen. This has been the best Marab Dovichelli we've seen. This was more impressive than that pure yawn. That was more impressive than the Marlon Marais. This was absolutely amazing from Marab Dovichelli. So I predict Marab will move from the number two and number one contender. I think because Sterling's moving to featherweight nonetheless at UFC 300. As for Cejudo, I'd bump him down to, dare I even say remove him from the rankings? I mean... I don't know what to do with the guy. Um, someone did propose that he could potentially fight Umar Nurmagomedov if he wins his March 2nd bout against Belzat Kazum or whatever he's fighting. Uh, I don't know if that's actually going to happen, but uh, that would be very cool if Henry Sudo took on Umar Nurmagomedov. But I think that's it for Triple C Henry Sudo. His time here is done. As for Marab, his time is just beginning. Next up, at welterweight, we had Ian Gary, the always controversial, the new villain of the UFC, taking on hands of steel, Jeff Neal, and Ian Machado Gary wins a unanimous decision. And by the way, Derek Cleary almost robbed Ian Gary of a win here. Thank goodness Felicia O and Sal Diamato scored this um, fight accurately, as it was clearly a 30-27 for Ian Gary. Ian Gary just won all three rounds, just was technically better at striking, um, outstruck him 67 to 46 significantly, 80 to 57 total. Um, was more on the uh, pace, was um, dodging more of Jeff Neal's strikes. Um, but for some reason, Derek Cleary gave two of the three rounds to Jeff Neal. I don't, I don't even know how. I could have maybe seen round two for Jeff Neal at best. But I mean, I just thought maybe it was round one for Jeff Neal, but it was just clearly an Ian Gary win. Thank goodness that we got through this. This was not a split decision. This was a good win for Ian Gary. But as for Jeff Neal, now a two-fight losing streak, is now two and four his last six, and that's since 2020. Um, kind of awkward. Jeff Neal has now had is averaging one fight a year since 2020. Um, I don't know what's next for Jeff Neal, but Ian Gary is becoming a star. He is now seven and zero in the UFC, fourteen and zero professionally. Playing up to his villain role, he could play it a bit harder. He could really play the villain role a lot harder. Um, but you know what? Nonetheless, getting a win, and he'll move from number ten to number eight in the rankings. So sitting above Ian Gary will be Wonderboy Thompson, Sean Brady, Colby Covington, Gilbert Burns, Shafkar Kamatov, Blah Muhammad Kamar Usman, and the champion Leon Edwards. He called out Colby Covington. It is the perfect fight to make. Colby's coming off a loss. Should be fighting down. Ian Gary is calling him out. They hate each other. I think the Colby Covington fight is perfect. I think it can main event a card in Ireland. I think it could be the co-main event of a pay-per-view. Absolutely amazing, Ian Gary. I freaking love it. 
And, you know, I think it's even funnier that he went the decision after hyping up how bad he's going to beat Jeff Neal. So I, th- I find that also pretty funny. He also said he was, like, too big to go to Ireland. I mean, the, the, the kid knows how to rile up the audience. He knows how to get people to tune in, whether the, inform- the performance was impressive or not. I think we can use Iatopura as a great example in the main event as someone who goes five rounds with Josh Emmett and then knocks out Volkanovski. I think we can use that as a great example of this will not define Ian Gary. He'll have more impressive performances in his career as he moves on. Jeff Neal, currently ranked number eight, will probably drop down to the number nine spot in the rankings. Um, what could be next for Jeff Neal? I'm seeing maybe Michael Venom Page if he beats Kevin Holland. Maybe even Kevin Holland if he wins that fight. Renat Fokradinov is an option. Definitely going to be fighting down Jeff Neal, slowly falling down the rankings. There was at one point that he was in fight night main events, and now he's losing to Ian Machado Gary. Nonetheless, good win for Ian Gary. Co-main event, Robert the Reaper Whitaker, Paulo Costa. Paulo have a nickname, Paulo the Eraser Costa. Yes, sir. As um Robert Whitaker gets it done. And this should have been the fight of the night, ladies and gentlemen. This was such a great fight. So back and forth. Um, and the tale of the fight was basically Paulo had more power. Whitaker had more volume. Robert Whitaker outstrikes him 95 to 67. Significant toll strikes were exactly the same. Um, and Paulo Costa almost knocked Whitaker out at the end of round one, hit him with a wheel kick, followed up with some, some punches. If, if it would have gone on five more seconds, ten more seconds, it would have been over. We would have gotten a knockout by Paulo Costa. But nonetheless, Whitaker survives. Um, moving into round two, outstrikes Paulo by six. In the final round, outstrikes him by 11. I, Whitaker got wobbled with a couple of Paulo's big hits. Paulo ate everything Whitaker threw at him. Almost made me sad because I was really rooting for Paulo Costa here, but... You know, I correctly predicted Rob and Ian Gary by decision. Paul Costa could have gone either way. He loses, but you know what? It is what it is. Our way to remain your number three middleweight in the world. And Paul Costa could fall down, I'd say, to number eight in the rankings because Brendan Allen and Nazanimov were both coming off of wins. But I think the guy who lost two weeks ago, Roman Dolodizze, would be a perfect opponent for Paulo Costa, okay? And I'd even go as far as say Paulo Costa versus Chris Curtis could be a fun fight. I want to see Paulo against a striker. I really do. I really do. As for Robert Whitaker, it's tough to say. It's tough to say, you know, he wins this close fight against Paulo Costa. It was a very, very close fight, 29-28. But, um, you know, just the thing is he's lost to Adesanya. He's lost to Duplessis. He's beaten Marvin Torrey, beaten Paul Costa, beaten Jerry Kenyer. I mean, it is so tough on what to do with Robert Whitaker. I think a Sean Strickland fight is perfect right now. Um, I think that's the only fight that you can really do at the moment is that Sean Strickland fight. Um, Because other than that, you know, I don't really want to make Robert Whitaker fight down. I mean, unless unless Brendan Allen wins, I think Brendan Allen versus Robert Whitaker could be a good fight. But I don't really want to run back Robert Whitaker and Jared Cannonier. You know, it's, it's, it gets pretty complicated. You can even do Hamza Chemaev, Robert Whitaker. A lot of options for the Reaper. Enjoy this win, Whitaker. Good stuff, Paulo. Hate to see you lose, but you are still one of my favorite UFC fighters. And ladies and gentlemen, we get to the main event. And I'm going to officially say this on the record on episode 67 of the Surprise Jab podcast that this is my favorite prediction I've ever made for a UFC fight that is right this is i've I've been watching fights since september of 2019 and this is my favorite prediction i've ever gotten correct and i've I've made a lot of good predictions you know i've made a lot of good predictions this is my favorite of all time as ia topura knocks alexander volkanovsky out cold to become the new men's featherweight champion 
absolute scenes at UFC 298. Absolute scenes. And by the way, round one, Volkanovski won. Volkanovski outstruck Iatopir in round number one, 26 to 16. Comes out in round two, was actually outstriking him until their uh, exchange where Iatopir landed a beautiful right cross, knocked with uh, knocked Volkanovski out cold, landed some follow-up punches. And when I mean cold, I mean he was out like a light. It was worse than the Islam Makachev KO. Oh my goodness. Amazing. Iatopira gets his 14th career finish his, oh no, 13th career finish, his fifth knockout. Very impressive. Itapira also won his seventh UFC fight here, um, and this was his fifth finish in the UFC. Very, very impressive. Earned 50K performance bonus, two for it. I mean, you have a new star. I mean, he was talking about headlining where Real Madrid play in Spain. I mean, the, the Real Madrid, which is one of the most famous soccer clubs in the world, gave a thank you video from the players to, uh, or congratulations, I say not a thank you, a congratulations to Iatopira on his performance. Absolutely amazing. Iatopira, you're an absolute stud. And we correct, correctly predicted round two knockout for Iatopira. I can't. I cannot believe I actually predicted it. Like, like I'm actually in shock. Like I correctly predicted the round, how he was gonna do it. Absolutely amazing. It's Topira. I'm a huge Topira fan. I've been a Topira fan. I was kind of in denial. I mean, after he knocked out Jai Herbert, I was a huge fan. I was a, more of a Bryce Mitchell fan at the time in December 22, but I was still happy for Ian when he won. Was really rooting for him against Josh Hammett. Was really rooting for him here. All the odds were stacked against Volkanovski. And how about him being the cover athlete for EA Sports UFC 5? They don't even use that picture on their social media anymore. All right. They, they, they don't even use Volkanovski on the cover because since Volkanovski was made the cover athlete, he's been brutally knocked out in back-to-back fights. Put Ia Topura on the cover of UA, EA Sports UFC 5. Come on. Make it happen. Make it happen, people. Itapira will go from the number three contender at men's featherweight to the number, or the featherweight champion, I should say. Um, Volkanovski will fall down to the number one spot in the contender. He'll be in the rankings like of contenders for the first time since 2019. As for pound for pound, I mean, Volkanovski was the number three pound for pound fighter, and Itapira just knocked him out. Does that make Itapira the number three fighter in the world? You know, are we going to, I'd put him at five. I'd put him at six. I mean, this guy is absolutely incredible. Absolutely incredible. He's the only person in the pound for pound rankings, I think, who's officially undefeated. Um, of course, you know, um, I feel like, you know, Islam Makachev and Sean Malley kind of carry this stigma that they're undefeated. Um, Leon Edwards hasn't lost in so long. It's like he's undefeated. And John Jones's only loss is by disqualification. So kind of kind of a funky situation. Medea Topira is a star now. Absolute stud. And I don't even really want, want I will talk about what's next for both these guys, but as for now, I just kind of want to give Ia Topira his props. He just knocked out the greatest featherweight champion of all time. That's right. I'm putting Volkanovski over Jose Aldo. He beat Jose Aldo. That should say something. Um, so I just want to give you Topira his props for being the best featherweight champion in the world right now. 15 and 0, 27 years young. Oh man, we could legit be seeing the next John Jones. I kid you not. He, this is so much promise. It's so rare you get a young champion who knocks out the great, is undefeated. He, this could be the next McGregor, for goodness sakes. He's got that kind of charisma in Spain. He has more Instagram followers than a majority of other fighters. He's passed. He passed three million after his win. He had two million something before his fight. His cockiness, his confidence heading in. It wasn't cockiness. It was confidence heading in. was off the charts. Absolutely amazing stuff from Ia Topira.
So what's next? What's next for El Matador after his newest win? Well, you know, it's it's tricky. Say he called out Conor McGregor. He said he doesn't want to fight Max Holloway, Yair Rodriguez, Brian Ortega, um, because he doesn't want to fight any old guys. He doesn't want to fight Mosvar because he doesn't have a finish. So what can we do with Eotope here? Well, first off, I think he is smart. He is going to take some time off. He is going to build the stigma around him. Topiro knows what he's doing. We're going to let some things play out first. First, Max Holloway will take on Justin Gaethje. I'm predicting Justin Gaethje to win that. I'm even feeling a Justin Gaethje knockout. I just feel, you know, I've seen it with Kamaru Usman. I've seen it with Alexander Volkanovsky. I've seen it with Aljamain Sterling. I've seen it with Kamaru Usman. I've seen it with Israel Adesanya. I mean, these guys are losing, you know. These guys are losing as they continue to get older. I mean, Valentina Shevchenko, if we're talking about women, you know, um... So I'm really feeling Justin Gaethje becomes the first man to knock out Max Holloway. I think Max's uh, durability, I think his uh, technicality is better than Gaethje. But Justin Gaethje has so much power. So much freaking power. Look what he did to Hafel Fazif. Look what he did to Dustin Borier. I mean, ridiculous. So I'm picking Gaethje over Max Holloway. And I honestly think after that, Max Holloway for a featherweight title shot will not be feeling too good. I'm predicting Ira Rodriguez to beat Brian Ortega. But I just don't think there's any hype around Yair. I think whether Brian Ortega or Yair win, no one wants to see them fight for a belt. Uh, if anything, it'll just be to build up Yudopir's repertoire as he'll get another knockout or submission. And as for Mosvar Evlov, I, I think Yudopir made a great case. He is 18-0 with no finishes in the UFC. I'm pretty sure he is 8-0 in the UFC with no finishes. Never really been close to a finish either. So, most of our Evlov could potentially take on the winner of Yair and Brian Ortega. Most of our Evlov could potentially take on Max Holloway. But as for right now, I think Yotopira just has to wait in the wings. Another thing for Yotopira is that him and Sean O'Malley could potentially produce a double champ fight. Yotopira has mentioned that he could fight up to welterweight. So, you could potentially see Yotopira win at lightweight and welterweight. Okay, so... Not trying to guess up Ian Topiro too much. Not trying to ride him. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, not trying to sound like a fanboy, but there's a lot of lot of hope for him in the future. But honestly, the Max Holloway fight is probably the only fight that you could say makes sense, and I still don't see that happening. So I'll give you that. As for Volkanovski, you know, I don't want to see Volk fight until the end of the year. You know, you are now 35 years old. You've not just been TKO'd. You've been knocked out clean in back-to-back fights. Pretty brutal. Um, I mean... Such a shame. I don't know what to do with him. He could fight Mozvar Evlov. He could fight freaking. He could go up to lightweight and fight someone like I don't even know Matus Gamrod. I, I don't know what to do with Volk. I think Volk just kind of needs to let stuff play out the whole year. Might even need to take the whole year off. He clearly rushed. Clearly taking the fight on short notice against Islam was a bad idea. Clearly turning around for his fight with Yitopiro was a bad idea. It's a shame to see us to Volk. So I'll give him Mosvar Evlov later in the year, fight night main event. But um, if we put him up against more knockout artists, he will get knocked down. He will, without a doubt, get knocked down. Very unfortunate. But UFC 298 belongs to Ito Pira. Huge wins by Robert Whitaker, Ian Gary, Marab securing a title shot, Anthony Hernandez finally breaking into the top 15. Amanda Limos and Mackenzie Dern putting on an entertaining fight. Marco Sergio de Lima getting another finish at 38 years old. Ringa Nakamura remaining undefeated. Zhang Meng Yang remaining undefeated in his finishing abilities. Danny Barlow winning his UFC debut. Oban Elliott winning his UFC debut. And Miranda Ravrick breaking into the women's flyweight. Top 15. The night belongs to Topira, but there are so many stars on this card. UFC 298, the best card of the year so far. Better than another 
Benny than any fight night we've had. I could say that with certain. Okay, better than UFC 297 pay-per-view wise. Um, super fun stuff. Am I sad it's over? No, I'm kind of happy it happened. Honestly, I'm ha more happy it happened than sad it's over. And that's how we have to live life. But we look forward this upcoming Saturday as we head to Mexico. We're going to Mexico City in Mexico for UFC Fight Night. Brandon Moreno and Brandon Royval to the rematch. You also get Yair Rodriguez and Brian Ortega. You get some Mexican or just Spanish fighters in general that are so entertaining. Yasmin Jaraguay, Daniel Zaluber, the 18-year-old Raul Rosas Jr., the knockout artist Manuel Torres, Jesus Aguilera, Christian Quinones, Edgar Chavez, Claudio Puelles. I mean, it just goes on and on. Absolute uh, amazing card in Mexico. Super excited for it. Going to be watching that Saturday night. That's for now. That's all we got for this episode on this beautiful Monday night. It was a great weather today. Great weather today in Minnesota. It was in the 30s. I didn't even wear a jacket out. It was amazing out. And that's just how we're going to head into the week, guys. Amazing vibes. Great times. I will catch you guys Thursday. We are going to have a very fun surprise topic on that episode. A little bit of a conspiracy, if you will. We're going to be previewing UFC Mexico City. Uh, checking in with the other leagues and stuff. Going to be super fun. Episode 68 drops later this week. But as for now, we close out episode 67 with a big thank you to all my listeners make this week the best week ever and i will catch you next time on the surprise jeb podcast